Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. Today we've got a guest, Dr. Greg Allison, who's a professor at Southern Seminary, where I did my doctorate, by the way. And he's written a fascinating new book that's both timely and timeless called Embodied, Living as Whole People in a Fractured World. Dr. Allison, really appreciate you joining us. I want to jump in and ask you, you start the book with a story about Drake. Can you share that story with us and how it motivated writing Embodied? Uh, Sean and Scott, thank you for having me on this podcast. And I'm glad to share this story of Drake who was a student of mine toward the beginning of my teaching career at Western Seminary. Uh, He came into my office one day complaining of many uh, physical problems, some gastrointestinal problems. He was lethargic, couldn't concentrate. He would read books for his classes and wouldn't remember anything, often nauseous, uh, couldn't sleep, things like that. And uh, he asked me, so, uh, Doc, what's the, what are the spiritual problems at the heart of my physical problems? And so I began to uh, kind of ply him with questions about his physical uh, being, like, what is he eating? How is he resting and sleeping? Is he exercising? And basically, he had a cavalier attitude just dismissing this line of questioning because he wanted a spiritual solution to his physical problems. And I was thinking his physical problems were due to physical problems, and he didn't like that. So uh, very displeased with my questions, he uh, got up from his seat and with a huff just left my office. But that plunged me into kind of a crisis. So what should I, as a professor at an evangelical seminary, what should I say to students who are wrestling with physical problems? Uh, What should I say from scripture and from sound theology that will help them to understand what's going on? This launched my uh, decades-long study of a theology of human embodiment. So Greg, tell tell us a little bit more about as you've you know as, as you've been on this journey for the last twenty years or so, wh- why is a theology of embody so imp- embodiment so important today, and why do you think it's been neglected in the past? Let me just tick off a couple of contemporary problems that are addressed by a theology of human embodiment. Uh, many Americans, probably around ninety five percent wrestle with body image problems sometime during their uh, life. So they're not pleased with how tall or short they are, are, uh, what they weigh or how skinny they are and so forth. So body image problems, I think, are directly addressed by a robust theology of embodiment. People who wrestle with gender dysphoria and transgenderism, uh, I think a theology of human embodiment addresses those struggles some of us, many of us, wrestle with sins of the body, like lust, gluttony, and sloth. And so this theology of embodiment addresses how to uh, grapple with those problems. If we as Christians, as we should desire a holistic sanctification, we should not just in, engage in spiritual disciplines, but also physical disciplines, which we rarely talk about in our churches, but are addressed by a theology of embodiment. If we grapple with physical suffering, 
disabilities, illnesses like uh, MS or Alzheimer's disease. A theology of embodiment addresses those physical difficulties. If we question what happens to us after death, a theology of embodiment addresses that kind of line of questioning. So there's all kinds of contemporary questions, social, moral problems, and realities that I think a robust theology of embodiment addresses. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, favor with God and favor with man. So there's this intellectual, this spiritual, but also this physical development of him. He was a whole being, and yet your book is written to correct that this has gotten out of balance. How has this gotten out of balance, and where did this student get this idea that if he had a physical problem, it should be solved solely through some kind of spiritual or intellectual route? I think the church, for much of its history, has been infected with the heretical idea of Gnosticism, which privileges the immaterial part of human nature, call it the soul, call it the spirit, call it the soul and spirit. That which is immaterial is most true of us, is primary, uh, is the most important aspect. And our physical uh, reality, our body, is really a hindrance to God's will. It could become the seat of our sin. It's to be diminished, deprecated. Certainly, we should not give any thought to uh, our physicality. And, and so people like Drake, I think, influenced by this. And then I think the church at large just really wrestling with how do we live as whole people in a fractured world, as embodied people, given this background and this infection of we really place our embodiment on a second level as being unimportant. It's just not something we should be concerned about. A couple things on this, maybe just to get get clear for our listeners, you know, we, we are, as the scripture describes, a combination of both body and soul today. But what what will happen, you know, after our death uh, and when the Lord returns? What 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 is our bodily destiny uh, in those two areas? So all of us are moving inexorably toward death, which is the cessation of activity by our uh, our physical being, right? Our uh, physical functioning ceases. Uh, and then we become unzipped. That is, we uh, as believers in Jesus Christ will go immediately into the presence of the Lord, but we will be disembodied. So I, at my death in however many years from now, I, I will go immediately into the presence of the Lord, but I will be disembodied I will not be fully human. I cannot be fully conformed to the image of Christ yet because he is the God-man. I will still be awaiting the fullness of my salvation because God holistically saves me. So I think there will be a longing for an anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ, at which point I will receive my resurrected, glorified body. I will once again become fully human because the uh, proper state of a, a human existence is embodiment. I will once again, once again become fully human. I will be fully redeemed. I will be fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. 
And depending on one's eschatology, eventually I will live in the new heavens and the new earth, which is a physical reality. And uh, so that's the destiny of myself as a as an embodied image bearer of God who believes in Jesus Christ. So, but but there will be a time. I like the phrase you use: "will we'll be unzipped." Uh, yep. To where we will we will exist for a time in a disembodied state. I take it that's what Paul means when he says that to be to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yes, Second Corinthians five one through nine mm-hmm. exactly is the passage key passage about this, and it's interesting as we look at that passage, Paul really shudders in horror at this idea of being disembodied. He uses the metaphor of nakedness or the metaphor of being unclothed not pleasant metaphors. He shudders in horror at this intermediate state because we will not be fully human, we'll be disembodied, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. So when, when the Lord returns and we, and we are fully resurrected and, and embodied again in a resurrection glorified body, I've heard some theologians suggest that uh, we, we, may, we may have some of the same physical infirmities in our resurrection body that we have in our in our earthly bodies. What what do you make of a claim like that? If our resurrected, glorified bodies are perfect, I don't see how we could affirm that we will still be beset uh, by our infirmities, our disabilities. I I don't know how God will redeem them and how they will be expressed, but to the extent that disabilities and and, uh, physical suffering and and illnesses are somehow tied in ultimately to the fall, if the curse of the fall is reversed, right, the glorification of our bodies, I'm not of the opinion that we will continue to suffer from those infirmities. I think all things will be made new and will be uh, completely glorified and not uh, have those disabilities and sufferings. So, so my shoulder, my shoulder is going to work just fine. <laughs> and you know what? For, for I'm going to be six uh, nine, dunk over LeBron James, <laughs> right, in his right. prime, right? That's that's what I'm waiting for. I, 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 I didn't think we said the resurrection body would be subject to wishful thinking, though. <laughs> uh, that's true. <laughs> you can always hope. I can always hope. <laughs> A lot of your book rests on what it means to be human and that we've misunderstood that we are embodied beings, body and soul together. And to do so, you go back to Genesis, the beginning, that God makes us of dust and breathes life into us. And as bodies, you say we're male and female, yet you resist what's called gender essentialism. Can you explain what's meant by gender essentialism and how you differ from it? Gender essentialism is the view that men and women are of distinctly different natures. So according to this view, we can list unique, distinct masculine traits like initiative taking, aggressiveness, never asking directions. And we can list unique, distinct feminine traits like responding, gentleness, multitasking. So the idea is men are or should be manly men because they hunt, drive trucks, and they never change diapers. (laughs) And women are or should be womanly women because they bake, do yoga, have long hair, 
This is gender essentialism. My view maintains that there are no particular human capacities, obviously outside of reproductive capabilities. There are no particular human capacities and no particular human properties that belong exclusively to women or that belong exclusively to men. Instead, there are common human capacities such as reasoning, feeling, willing, purposing. These capacities aren't gender specific, but are common human capacities that are and will be inherently expressed by women and men in ways that reflect their femaleness and their maleness. Additionally, there are common human properties that are indeed given gendered embodiment must be expressed by women in ways that are fitting to women and that are expressed by men in ways that are fitting to men. Human properties such as gentleness, courage, initiative, nurturing, patience, protectiveness, etc. These are not gender specific, but common human properties. Some we would call Christian virtues. Some we would say are the fruit of the spirit. They are and indeed must be expressed by women and men in ways that, that reflect their femaleness and their maleness. So my view is not gender essentialism, nor does it focus on roles of men and women. I'm trying to get down to the ontology, the metaphysics of what we are as male gendered embodied image bearers and female gendered embodied image bearers. Okay, so so tell me in practice why that distinction which you carefully lay out in your book is so important to understand and to get right. I think there's a tremendous amount of confusion in evangelical circles and evangelical churches about what a man is, what a woman is. And again, I think there's probably a very strong connection to gender essentialism. So we may say nurturing is a female attribute, but we would be reluctant to say nurturing is a male attribute. And I just beg to disagree. Nurturing done by a woman and nurturing done by a man may look very differently, but we would still say it's nurturing. So for example, a new mom nurtures her new baby by breastfeeding him or her. The father, uh, given the child that grows up a little bit, the father who may be, say, an electrician, maybe a plumber, uh, takes his children and nurtures them by teaching them the trades of uh, electricity and plumbing. Nurture would be a common human property that would be expressed according to our genderness. But I'm trying to move us away from these lists. These are manly men. These are womenly women. What happens if I'm a man, but I don't like to chew tobacco and hunt and things like that, but I prefer to bake and paint beautiful portraits. Is that communicating to me that in some way I'm actually not a man? Is that going to stir up in me gender dysphoria? Is that going to prompt me to pursue becoming a woman through hormone and through um, sex reassignment surgery? I think this is a really important topic because we're, we're creating confusion, and there's a lot of confusion out there among us. Greg, I take it that you, you also reject the notion that 
male and female are interchangeable. Absolutely. These common human properties and common human capacities will always be expressed by men in ways that are appropriate to maleness and by women in ways that are appropriate to femaleness. But notice that we're not talking at all about roles, which is where most of our discussions, if not all of our discussions, devolve to this point. Uh, and I just think that there's a fundamental uh, area, more important area that we need to explore before we get into the roles. Well, and the phrase, uh, you know, appropriate to their maleness or femaleness, there's there's a lot riding on what we mean by that phrase. Uh, who, who or what determines what is appropriate to maleness or femaleness? Is that something that's culturally driven or is that something that's more ontological? To a great degree, the expression of these common human capacities and common human properties to a great degree, they, they, they are expressed given certain cultural norms, certain cultural expectations. So yes, culture has uh, exercises a great influence on in how we express these. So that, that is a very key point. But what is appropriate? Uh, there's a spectrum, right? So there, there's a spectrum for men to express nurturing and gentleness. There's a spectrum for women expressing gentleness and nurturing. But we, we need to have a wide enough spectrum so that we don't pigeonhole people. And if they don't fit into that spectrum, they become very confused. Do you remember the book and the movie Hidden Figures? Mm -hmm. It's about three African-American yeah. women. Um, I mean, they were literally inventing new mathematical computations in order to land a man on the moon. Now, we would often say mathematical computations, that's male stuff, right? Men are really good at these kinds of mathematical computations. Does that mean an African-American woman who is inventing new mathematical computations is really a man? That she's manly? That she is acting like a man? No, it doesn't. That The spectrum needs to be broad enough so that woman who is exceptionally strong incredibly strong in this mathematical computation. We don't say, well, she's a man. She's acting like a man. She must be a manly woman. That's just not the way we should approach this. So, Greg, let me just one more follow up on this. I mean, if if on the one hand we're saying that that, that expression of male and female is, is largely culturally driven, but on the on the other hand, I think we'd also agree that there are you know, there are lots of cultural expressions of both masculinity and femininity that we would say are, are out of bounds or, yes. or unbiblical. And that's why I wonder to what, degree is, to what degree is it actually culturally driven what, what these appropriate expressions of male and femaleness are. I think we need to be willing to critique some of those cultural expressions as well. Absolutely. It's, they're lar the expressions are, are largely culturally formed and influenced, but so that we're on a spectrum. But I think we know, given biblical instruction, where the, the bounds of the spectrum, uh, when, when we leave those bounds. So just to use a word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, I think it's malakoi, kind of like soft men. I think when we see a man who is expressing himself in very effeminate ways, 
by the way he conducts himself, behaves, acts. I think we can say this is beyond the bounds of scripture. And we should then say there's something amiss here. It's more than just a cultural expression. It's actually violating a biblical norm. But we have to be really careful to make sure that we're expressing biblical norms and not just our cultural preferences. That's a great way to put it, that there are biblical kind of patterns. The Bible says we're male and female, and we're to live out in congruence with our biological sex, but doesn't always tell us exactly how to do that. So there's boundaries and yet flexibility, and sometimes we take those areas that should be flexible and we turn them into boundaries and thus hurt people. And I think that's the heart of what you're getting at. Let me shift gears here a little bit. Uh, You cover so much in this book, but you make a distinction between particularity and intersectionality. Explain what that distinction is and it's why, why it's important to understand it. So my third chapter of the book is entitled The Particular Body. And by particularity, I mean that each person is an individual. God explicitly designs and creates each human being to be a particular gendered embodied individual. Specifically, to get into a little bit more in detail, each person is a particularity in terms of their ethnicity or race, in terms of their family or kinship, in terms of their temporality, where they're located in time, in terms of their spatiality, where they're located in space, their context, their culture, and all like that, and their story. That's what I mean by particularity. Intersectionality is an approach, very common today, that basically divides the world into haves and have-nots. Those in the former category, the haves, uh, they're people of privilege, Those in the latter category have nots, they are marginalized. Examples of the first category, the privileged or haves, uh, wealthy, straight, educated white males. Examples of the second category, those who are marginalized, the have nots, poor, lesbian, uneducated black females. According to intersectionality, people exist along a spectrum of identities. So those with more prized characteristics, the first category, are individuals who possess power, prestige. They snub, they sideline the others, or they simply live in a cavalier way such that they're blind to the many privileges that they have. Those with the more disfavored characteristics, the second category, they lack access to power, They're marginalized, they're disenfranchised by the others, and they should claim the right to protest against the first category, their oppressors. So key to intersectionality is its emphasis on differences among individuals rather than commonalities shared by them. So so my approach is oriented to particularity and questions of how understanding our uniqueness can lead to human flourishing for all human beings. Greg, one of the passages of Scripture that's always sort of puzzled me is one you address in the book and, and very helpfully. And it's in 1 Corinthians 6.18, that every other sin a person commits is outside the body, 
but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Uh, help help us help our listeners understand more of what you think Paul meant by that. In what way does sexual immorality sin against your own body in ways that other sins might not? Uh, it's quite a startling verse, isn't it? I, it I'm is. glad you asked the, the question. So the, the context here, Paul rebukes the Corinthian men for engaging in sexual intercourse with temple prostitutes. And then these Corinthian men cavalierly dismiss that activity they think it's fine because it's just a normal human activity like eating food to fill their stomachs. Paul offers this correction to the Corinthians. Sex isn't like that. It's profound. Sex is profoundly different because an intimate union is forged between the man and the woman engaged in sexual intercourse. Sexual intercourse, therefore, is in a class by itself. But some might object, what about alcoholism? What about drug abuse? What about gluttony? Aren't these also sins against the body? In my view, they may be abuses of the body, but they are introduced from the outside. So whiskey, heroin, excessive food, these are external substances that are ingested or injected into the body and wreak havoc with it. But still, sexual immorality is profoundly different because it engages parts of the body itself in an illicit activity. It contradicts the truth, purpose, and destiny of the body. And because of the intimacy of the sexual bond forged in sexual intercourse, sexual immorality is a devastatingly evil sin in a category all by itself. I appreciate the clarity with which you speak to these issues. You don't pull any punches, so to speak, where our culture's at, but you're always tethered to what Scripture is saying. So let me ask you this question. You told the story at the beginning uh, about Drake and how he had a physical issue but felt like there could be a spiritual solution alone to it. If we tether that back to sexuality— Sometimes I get the impression that some evangelicals think even in marriage, any sexual activity between a husband and a wife is fine, ignoring a theology of the body, as long as intellectually or in terms of faith, they feel like it's okay. I wonder if you could give us some boundaries for even sexual behavior between a husband and a wife when we think about ourselves as embodied beings. Yeah. Uh, Paul addresses sexual activity between a husband and wife in several places in his writings. And, and to summarize what he instructs, I would say sexual activity between a husband and a wife must bear all the marks of mature holiness. So forced sexual intercourse is precluded. Tragically, there is such a thing as marital rape, and it is heinous. It is repugnant. Additionally, forms of sexual activity to which one's spouse objects, they should be precluded as well. So if your spouse objects to some sexual activity that you find appealing, then your spouse's preference not to engage in that activity must be respected. On the contrary, 
sexual expression must be set in an atmosphere of love, companionship, tenderness, respect, honor, and nurture. So sexual activity is to be expressed in a God-honoring and spouse-respecting way. That's, that's a great answer. I've got one, one last question for you, and we're shifting gears here, but I want our listeners to get a sense of the scope of questions you address that relate to being embodied beings. And you had a section I just thought was fascinating about plastic surgery. What biblical principles should shape how Christians think about plastic surgery? So if plastic surgery is necessary to reverse the curse of the fall, a soldier who's been in a war and who's had his face partially or, or completely disfigured by a, by a bomb that goes off, right? I think it's proper for him or her to undergo plastic surgery because he, the face should not be that way. Um, so as long as plastic surgery is to reverse the curse of the fall, I think it's okay. It's fine. It would be legitimate. When plastic surgery is employed to enhance our appearance beyond what it should be, what is human, for example, when uh, when we want to exaggerate certain parts of our embodiment in a way that they have not been in, uh, designed by God, then I think we move outside the bounds of what is legitimate. We begin to, in a sense, metaphorically slap God's face and say, you've made me wrong. I'm not happy with the way that you've embodied me. So I'm going to disrespect the way you've created and embodied me, and I'm going to enhance uh, my appearance. I'm going to enhance, enhance certain portions of my body, often in conformity with cultural norms, right? And, and so there's a dishonoring of God, his design, and the way he's created us as his embodied image bearers. I hope our audience is just listening and appreciating just the clarity and thoughtfulness you're bringing to these issues. We had so many more questions for you that didn't get a chance to cover that you discuss in your book. You talk about polyamory, you talk about modesty, and how the fact that we're embodied beings should shape the way that we dress. And I put those out there because I hope our listeners will pick up a copy of your book. Again, we're here with Dr. Greg Allison, and his book is Embodied, Living as a Whole People in a Fractured World. Thanks for writing an excellent book, and thanks so much for carving out time to join us today. Sean and Scott, it's been a great pleasure, great privilege. Thanks for your excellent questions. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. This podcast is brought to you by Talbot School Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Master's in Christian Apologetics, in which I teach full-time, which is now fully offered online. Just search Apologetics, Biola, or Talbot, and it'll pop up. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.